1: Clarissa, A Life Stolen. Please note, the following content is sensitive in nature and some listeners may find it distressing.
2: You know, it's something that I I try not to think about too much and that I distance myself from as best I can, but... The nightmares never stop and it's just something that i have accepted that i'm always gonna have you know i've i've lived through i've lived through the worst
1: Rebecca Sainar was a 16-year-old schoolgirl when she first met and fell in love with the man who would soon bring unimaginable horror into her life. She came from Los Angeles in America to a rural town in West Cork on a study abroad scheme and enrolled in Skull Community College for a few months. Her future husband, his capacity for terror is still fully concealed, lived just up the road from her host family. Martin McCarthy was then 42, a bachelor farmer. He was the first man to show interest in Rebecca. Young and naive, she thought he was the one, and to her family's dismay, when she turned 18, she left America and moved to West Cork to be with him. Rebecca said that everything was okay at the start. She helped Martin on the farm and looked after the house, But when she discovered that farming was not for her, his attitude towards her changed and their relationship soured. Rebecca fell pregnant and gave birth to a little girl, Clarissa, in Cork University Hospital in 2010. Rebecca adored her daughter. The lively, joyful little girl enriched her life more than she could have imagined and the two were almost inseparable, playing most days on Audley Cove, the pretty little beach just below their house, across the bay from Jeremy Irons' castle. This is the tragic story of how their lives unravelled one night in March 2013 on that same beach.
2: Clarissa? Yeah. What's your mama's name? Mommy. What's my name? Um,
3: I've forgotten. You've forgotten? Can you tell me?
2: What's your name?
3: Clarissa.
2: And what's Daddy's name?
3: Daddy. Daddy what? Um Daddy Whittier.
2: <laughs> I never heard of Daddy Whittier before.
3: <sighs> daddy who Daddy Who? Daddy Wack whack for my daddy.
2: Whack for my daddy, oh daddy.
1: Martin was Rebecca's first serious romantic relationship. She was just 16 when they first met. She had moved continents to be with him, far away from her own family. But she grew up within the relationship, and aspects of Martin's character caused her increasing concern. She found him unsupportive and started to notice his possessiveness, an apparent vindictive streak and a pronounced egotism qualities she was not keen on having her precious little girl exposed to.
2: I think that there was a lot of cultural differences between us where we expected different things from one another that were never voiced. And so that silence between us was toxic from the beginning. He was very set in his ways. I never felt as if I could go to Martin for emotional support and certainly any kind of confidence that I had. I don't think that I would have recognized it at the time, how strongly it was just tied to Martin's mood of the day. Every time I tried to do something healthier for myself, like, lose weight, go on a diet after pregnancy, or try to exercise or anything like that. It would just be met by him by criticism and ridicule. He was so focused on the farm and on his legal case that he just, he didn't have time to care, even if he did care, because it didn't benefit him. So why should he care? He would very rarely call me by name. It was always the wife. And I just, I guess I didn't really notice at first that there was that level of possession in him, that there was that level of you are mine and so you give up your individuality to be my wife because that's what you are at the end of the day. You're not your own person. You are my wife, the wife of Martin McCarthy. I just felt like I was... Martin's personal property, and if I didn't go along with what he wanted, I would have to deal with his anger. And that was, uh, that was pretty scary to me at the time. I felt that, uh, I felt that I couldn't really have my own voice when he murdered Clarissa and when he killed himself. That was the ultimate, the ultimate form of egotism and and entitlement that you can't have this little girl and it was it was about have it's not about that clarissa was her own individual person that had a life ahead of her it was that nope she was his and so she could be disposed of as he saw fit you know you kind of ask yourself why didn't you see it you know, now and I, I look back and I kind of turn over all these memories in my head. I think to myself, why didn't I see this and why didn't I see that? But the reality is is that in your wildest imagination, in your most horrible nightmare, your your mind just can't comprehend. No normal person's mind can comprehend the act of of murdering your daughter and killing yourself. And I don't see how I could have ever let my thoughts go there because you don't think that any person is capable of doing that to their own child. You know, to somebody so small, to somebody who,
1: who idolizes you who has so much trust and faith in you. Rebecca said that Martin was quite absent from their lives. He was always either preoccupied with his farm or with a seemingly endless array of legal battles in which he fought for land or tried to avenge some perceived wrongdoing. And he just did not have the time for his young wife and daughter. After years of marriage counselling and trying unsuccessfully to make things work, Rebecca decided that she wanted a divorce. Martin was, he was just always very much in the background
2: for us as far as being a member of the family. His agenda definitely did come first. Uh, Prioritizing family time was not something that was in his agenda. Kind of question, well, is this a family environment that I want for my child? Do I want her to always Feel like she is second fiddle. She's not a priority in her father's eyes, and I didn't want that. Can you tell me a little bit about Clarissa? Well, she was um, she was a very energetic, talkative, loving little girl. She she loved to meet new people. She loved to ask them as many questions as she could get out of her mouth. She was very extroverted. Pretty much once she could talk, she just she just took off, and she wanted to converse with anybody that she met. She was very high-spirited. She always seemed to have a smile on her face. She could always make something fun out of any experience that she was in she just thought that every single thing was a wonderful experience and she was very she was very excited about her cows and her dogs very very excited very happy to just be a part of the world and can you tell me what happened that night I had gotten home from going shopping and skipperine with Clarissa and I had told Martin that I was going out to dinner with a friend of mine. When in reality, I was going to Bantry to the legal aid, the free legal aid night. And I wanted to go because I wanted to pursue a divorce. I made bacon and cabbage for Martin and Clarissa. I remember Martin was somewhere and I had no idea where he was and so I called him and he snapped at me and he said that I could wait and that he was going to be home soon and what I had to do wasn't that important so he finally came in the house and he didn't say anything to me he just walked straight to the kitchen table and started eating his dinner and Clarissa joined him and I um I remember saying to Clarissa that um that I was gonna to go to dinner with Maria, but that I would be in time to put her to bed. And she said to me that, that she wanted daddy to put her to bed. And then I kissed her and she kissed me and she said, have a nice dinner. When I had told her to have a nice dinner and then I got in the car and I started driving up the hill. And Martin rang me, and he asked me if the flashlight was left in the car. And I said that it was. So I drove back down the hill, and he met me in the farm. And he opened the passenger side door, took out the flashlight, didn't say anything else, and shut the door and went back up to the farm. I don't know if Clarissa was was uh, in his jeep or in the house, I don't know where Clarissa was, and I didn't ask, and I sincerely wish I did. Um, and then I I drove to Bantry, and I met with a gentleman who worked in the legal aid, and he answered my questions, and then I proceeded to drive home. Um, I must have gotten home somewhere around 8.30. And when I came into the house, nobody was in the house. And that was really strange, but it wasn't completely unheard of. I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe they're out in the fields east of the house, putting away the cows or checking on something, you know, 10 minutes passed. I kind of got a little bit worried that nobody was coming home. So... I um, I went outside. I tried to see if I could see anything in the fields east of the house, as far as a flashlight, or hear anything. And really, all I could hear was the sea. And there was no flashlight. And so I started looking in the um, in the outhouses and the cattle houses that were around the house. And I couldn't see anything. And so I went. And I found a flashlight in the laundry room and I tried to go east of the house to the fields and the flashlight was already dying. I knew that, that I couldn't really go far with that. So I went home and um, I opened up the back kitchen door and I started just calling Martin's phone, which I was already doing and not getting any answers. And so I, dialed his phone number and it was ringing and i noticed that in this scrap jeep that was just directly outside the back kitchen door there was a light that was going on and off and so i opened the jeep and there were clothes that belonged to martin that were good clothes and his cell phone And I had no idea why his cell phone was there. No idea why his clothes were there. So I I saw all the missed calls that I had called him. And um, our neighbor had called him. And so I rang his sister. And I asked, I asked, was Martin with you? And she said no. And so um, I said, well, I've been home for at least a half an hour at this stage and I couldn't find him. And she said, well, we're going to come over. And then I just started calling different neighbors, different friends. I called anybody who I could think of that he might be with. You know, at the time I just thought, well, maybe he is just trying to worry me again. Maybe he's just trying to make me think that that you know something is wrong and he's just at a neighbor's house or a friend's house and everything is fine. You know, after that I remember getting in my car and driving to the beach to see if I could see anything there. And um I just remember saying this isn't happening. This isn't happening. This isn't happening. And um you know I didn't see anything. And by the time I had gotten my um my car back up to the house because I really didn't know what to do at this stage. His sister and her husband arrived and then a whole bunch of his friends arrived and they started searching everywhere. And I remember it was, it was then that it felt as if this unbelievable nightmare was... Starting to play out. That's that's when my panic started to set in. And I just I didn't know what to do because I didn't know what was happening. By the time everybody had searched the outhouses, they had gone in the fields east of the house, in the fields near the water, and nobody could find them. And so I called the guards and I told them that I couldn't find. My child, I told them that my child and her father were missing and that we had searched everywhere. and she said that um, that they were gonna send somebody down to the house. By this stage, it was already after 11 o'clock. And I will always wonder, you know, if maybe I had called the guards earlier, we would have been able to save Clarissa in time. Nobody knows when Martin did what he did because obviously, the coldness of the day that it was, the temperature of the water is going to skew any kind of accurate time of death. So, you know, maybe they were still alive when I got home. Maybe they heard the car coming down the hill. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know when, when Clarissa took her last breath. And I just wished that I had, I had gotten the guards down faster so that they could call in the Coast Guard and inshore rescue. Pretty much as soon as the guards got in the house, they said to me that Martin's sister had found a note, and so I skimmed through it. You know, what he said in the letter made it quite obvious that he was going to murder Clarissa. I think it was just from that point that everything, everything just started shaking. My whole complete vision started shaking and just the shock and the panic just became so, so severe. And I just I started getting very upset, and I asked them if the Coast Guard was going to come. Obviously there were no there was there was nobody in the fields, and so the only other place that they could possibly be somewhere in the beach that we hadn't searched. So I remember asking them when the Coast Guard was coming out, and the guard said to me that the Coast Guard would be called in the morning, and I lost it. He had to explain to me that it was still a note that it might have been acted it might not have been acted upon and he didn't know if the current weather conditions were right for the coast guard. There wasn't a lot of wind there but there was certainly a mist that was there and I just felt like, you know, it's not there is no gale blowing outside. Why can't the coast guard come? My child is missing. Possibly somewhere in that beach and she's in danger and you're telling me that i have to wait until the morning after that they were there you know in no time at all i just i wanted to find her i could not mentally process what was going on there was a whole bunch of commotion my little girl was missing and i didn't i didn't even you know i didn't know what to do with myself and so and at this stage, uh, you know, there was so much commotion on the beach. There was there was lights set up. There was a fire truck right there. There was boats in the water. It was just, there was so, so much going on. And I remember going over to, um, to this little place kind of on the, the western side of the beach in Orderly Coat. Clarissette had this little pile of rocks that we had set up on one of the larger stones that was there there was this one specific rock that she had there that she loved that she called her little ginger rock and i took it in my pocket and i just started squeezing it and then we just watched the water not too long after that there was three guys from inshore rescue and they rushed down to um to the western side of where the tide was coming up and there she was she was face down in the water and she still had her head on (laughs) And these three guys got her out of the water. And I remember trying to render her. And my neighbor just pulling me back. Telling me not to interfere while they tried to save her. And he was just holding me back while they tried to give her CPR. And, and they just tried so many times when they just kept trying and trying and trying. And then finally there was this ambulance and the ambulance showed up. And paramedics rushed out of the ambulance, and, uh, and they ripped open her clothes. And they stuck a needle, I'm assuming, of um, adrenaline into her little leg. And I remember it was at that time that everything was, was going fuzzy and that I was going to faint. And then they took her into the ambulance, and they shut the doors, and then the doctor came out. The doctor told me that, that Clarissa was dead, and he asked how did this happen? And I said to him that her father did. And while they were, while they were trying to resuscitate Clarissa, they had shot up flares somewhere because they had found Martin's body somewhere else, not too far away, but not exactly where she, where she came up to shore. And I guess there was some, some kind of mix up about who was going to go and get him. And then I, am. Um, I remember being allowed to go into the ambulance and just seeing seeing her little body there and just lying my head down on top of her and crying and just the look in her eyes and how cold she was. Visibly, her face look, looked okay. She was pale and, and her eyes were bloodshot, obviously, but she her lips were blue. Her lips were very, very blue. I couldn't really see any, any scrapes, any bruises. Other than that, there was there was sand on her skin. Obviously, she was soaking wet, and her clothes were ripped at that stage. And she was missing one of her wellies. And I just remember feeling that it seemed like time was standing still. You know, not being able to comprehend all that had happened, and feeling as if there had to have been something wrong because this is not reality that I had to have been in some nightmare. And then the paramedics said that uh, they had to go and they had to go and take her to um to be autopsied. They had to go and take her in the ambulance to be autopsied and I couldn't come. And I remember trying to insist on coming and not wanting to leave. And they said that I could they said that I had to go and I left the ambulance and um one of the guards told me that they had found Martin, and they asked me, she asked me if I wanted to see him, and I said no. And then the ambulance left the beach, the fire truck left the beach, and um, I walked back up to the house, and I really can't remember anything else that happened that night.
1: How do you gone to that beach a lot to play together, the two of you?
2: That was definitely part of our routine. I would say if the if the weather was nice, we practically went down there every day.
1: Did she love it down there? Was it one of her kind of favorite places to go? She absolutely did love it. She she loved to collect the rocks, and
2: she loved to she loved to kind of stick her feet in the water. She wasn't crazy about the idea of going swimming yet, but she liked to just have her boots in a low tide. There was this um, this rowboat there. She loved to play in there. She loved to just march up and down the beach. She loved to throw rocks in the water. It was her special place.
1: Michael O'Regan was the head of Goline Coast Guard at the time. He found Clarissa that night and carried her little body from the water. So can you tell me what your name is, please?
4: Michael O'Regan.
1: And what was your relationship to the case?
4: I was the officer in charge of the Golden Coast Guard unit at the time.
1: Can you tell me about what happened that evening?
4: Well, that night, about 12.30, we got a call that a local person, Bellady Hobb, and his child were missing. So we proceeded to Bellady Hobb straight away, and when we got there, there was maybe 12 people there, and the fire brigade were there. But we set up a search then and we, we started searching along the shoreline. And I suppose the first thing we found was a half yogurt, a yogurt pack half empty, but we knew it was fresh. So that worried us was uh, the edge don't understand. So So myself and one of the lads, Paul Flatman, we went walked away to the right of the beach and the next thing we saw, something bubbling on the water. first it looked like a rag doll or something, but we ran out and picked it up and unfortunately it was, it was a child. And we brought the child ashore and we started... Well, I, I checked the pulse of the child and I checked everything I could and there was no pulse, but we started resuscitation straight away. And that lasted for, I'd say, well over an hour. We were probably knew that we we're wasting our time, but look, we—it wasn't our place to say that the child was had passed away. The doctor has to do that, so we kept we kept that resuscitation until the doctor arrived and the ambulance. So, in the meantime. I got a call from one of the team members that saw something floating in the sea about maybe half a mile down from the beach. So we went to the area straight away and the Baltimore lifeboats were there as well with a small boat, so they picked up. It ended up being a person in any case and they brought it to shore and we took it. We took the body then, or the person at that stage because we didn't realise it was a body and brought up, and we sat at a resuscitation, and the doctor came over and said there was no point. It was too late. Then it turned out we didn't know in this, because the child's father, who we had brought ashore, and I of the hardest thing for us was, when we brought the little to girl ashore, and we sat for I looked up, and who was standing over on me Only a child's mother, within five feet, I'd say, and she never uttered auth- a sound. And when we brought her husband ashore, she was standing there near us again. So it was very difficult.
1: How many of you were there that night?
4: There would have been about f- maybe 14 to 16 of a crew on the night.
1: It must have been a terribly <clears throat> difficult thing for you to deal with as well.
4: It was absolutely unbelievable. I mean, I was 50 years in the Coast Guard, and I never came across anything like it. You know, we came across a lot of incidents, very serious incidents, but a child. There's nothing, nothing worse than a child. Till the day I die, I'll never forget it. like and It actually nearly finished me because it took me for six months. I would say I woke up every night of the week, holding the child in my arms as I thought. Like, it's... I couldn't talk to anybody. I could do nothing. And I remember, the following November, we were up in in County Mead at a a Coast Guard conference, and one of the the headmen in the Coast Guard came up and said, Michael, we have a slot for you. Will you speak about the incident? I said, I don't know what I think about it, so I just said I would, so... I explained the whole thing, the whole incident, what happened, and I broke down a couple of times, obviously. But the strange thing, when I was able to speak about it, because the cloud lifted off, off me that I had spoken to somebody and people listened. It very hard to explain the feeling, but I think it was the best thing that ever happened, because it really wrecked me, and all the times I was out and all the bodies we recovered, that was certainly the worst thing. Like. And to see child's mother there standing like, what do you say you like?
1: What kind of an impact do you think a tragedy like that has on, on the whole community?
4: It has a huge impact article, a massive impact like I mean they were very outgoing people. We were at mass It's called the Sunday before, except for my wife, and we met Rebecca and her husband, and he had a little child up on his, up on his shoulders, and we were talking to them. And I suppose she had she was dressed in beautiful coloured clothes. And I got home, I said to my wife, I said, did you see the lovely clothes she had on her? or oh, that's, that's the American way, she said. And I suppose what struck me most of all was, and hit me the hardest was, the night we picked her body out of the water, she was wearing the same clothes. That was... I don't know, it really, that stuck to me, like the fact we had met her a few days before. And in a different situation. But the community, I had a community. I think it's... The whole community were really... I suppose in an awful way, really, because they knew everybody. They knew... They knew the whole family. And to let something like that happen.
1: Do you remember, Clarissa, when (coughs) she was alive? You said that you met her that one time when she was up on her dad's shoulders. Do you remember her saying anything or what her demeanor was She was smiling.
4: My wife, well we like children anyway, send no them ourselves, but my wife at the time she was smiling, a lovely, happy child, you know, and they were all happy we had a great chat with them and they had the care in the world. But I suppose you never know what life brings.
1: Did you know Martin McCarthy?
4: No Martin, yeah. No Martin, not very well, but we know him, he only lived 50 miles away from us in they Harbour and he used to be dealing with cattle a lot. So he had a farm, him up renting. So you'd meet him on the roads several times a week.
1: There was no indication at any stage that he could be harboring these kind of thoughts, was Not
4: there? No, no, no. No, even the day we met him, it would be that thing on your mind, like... No, we wouldn't know that much personally about him at all, like, we don't know. It was very hard to justify, that. hard to believe that somebody could be thinking that way, like...
1: When you found Clarissa <coughs> in the water, did you have any idea at that stage that it might have been her dad that had brought her in there? Did you know about the note?
4: Well, see, we didn't know. We first thought maybe it was a freak accident. They'd gone for a walk. It was very hard to know. And uh, we had no idea at all. But when we got the call in, when I got the call in, that uh, that some of the crew members has you noticed know, something on the water. Like everything seemed dead up then and you know we had a suspicion but we couldn't we didn't know like I mean our job was to save lives or certain recovery recover it doesn't matter what but because it's very hard to take it and very hard to believe it like even I suppose nobody And the night there there was a a silence there that night that's you couldn't describe it like everybody like we were doing our job Everybody was standing motionless. There wasn't a sound. Like there things, they'll always stick with you. Like you'll never forget it. I remember going home that morning. It was half of six when I got home, I think. And I took three glasses of brandy. I was, and my son came down. And I was crying. he what's wrong with you, I told him. And he was going to Cork, and we were building a house up in Cork. I said, I'm going to Cork with you. No, he said, you're staying at home. I said, no, I have to go. I said, I can't stay at home. So I went to Cork that morning to work, which are what I gave the day. talking to reporters, really. I suppose I was getting phone call after phone call. But I just had to get away, like...
1: How many how many bodies do you think you've retrieved over the years from, from the water?
4: I never... Well, when I was involved, I could have retrieved 70, 80 bodies, maybe. Maybe more.
1: But this was the hardest The level. hardest,
4: yeah. Wanted the child involved and the circumstances as well, like I mean. The circumstances and the child, like there's nothing worse than having a child in your arms, like.
1: How would you have described Martin <clears throat> McCarthy before before you knew about what happened that
4: night? Oh I thought he was an ordinary person, I didn't there was never anything at all. It's too on the general and if you met him he'd speak. There was absolutely nothing there was ever seen an order you could even imagine. Like. There was so much pity for her. And even f- for the next twelve months what she went through was well-like it wasn't easy and she was a great woman and a great person to put up with it like. And, in fairness, she came in one night and with training and thanked all the members and everything. It was a great person to do that, like she called it the station and gave a quarter of an hour. Thank people. You know, with all that she went through, even to think of doing that, like, I can tell you the person she is, she took all that pain really on her own when she was living in belly of the going in that state, because she had, her family were away from her. I think a lot of people seemed to me that she they have blamed her, her for what happened. And his family went very tough, right? I think, the, they weren't very nice to her. I saw it myself today at the coroner's court, like, just frightening. I, I wouldn't want to be there again to see something like that. I mean, they challenged the coroner, everything he said, they challenged him and shouted and rode And I didn't, there was a load, but anyway. But I was glad to get up that day because the coroner asked me some question and I didn't answer because I was afraid to answer it. He asked me my direct opinion and I know if I answer that. I could be in trouble, so I didn't answer. He didn't push it either. What
1: was the question?
4: Well, did I think that... that she was dead before him and things like that, you know? Did I think that... did she just walk into the water, fall into the water and be drowned. But I didn't answer that because if they were shouting, you couldn't, like... because we still have to live in the community, you know? But they're, like it's tough when it comes to that, isn't it? I mean... But... Rebecca had a tough time, that's all I can say
1: Tensions at the inquest were revealed in court reports from the time. Martin's family loudly defended him, saying he wouldn't harm an animal, let alone a person, while others claimed that he must have fallen into the water. But state pathologist Dr Margot Bolster told the inquest that Martin walked into the water that night and that his body did not show injuries consistent with a major fall. Coroner Frank O'Connell said that the suicide note could not be ignored. Rebecca was reported to have fled the courtroom when Martin's supporters loudly objected to a verdict which implied that Martin may have restrained his little girl in the water. Noel Baker reported the inquest in the Irish Examiner at the time. He reported that Mr. O'Connell told the court,
0: "I believe that what happened here is that shortly after having their evening meal, Martin and Clarissa McCarthy." went down to the beach, and somehow Clarissa was restrained by Martin McCarthy under the water. She went unconscious and died some time later, and that Mr McCarthy later took his own life.
1: Martin's friend Alan Hurley told the inquest,
0: I know for a fact that Martin McCarthy would harm no one.
1: Others chimed in, reasserting that there was no evidence of restraint, and that father and daughter entered the water at the same time to the same fate. Rebecca, visibly upset, left the room and returned minutes later, taking a seat next to her solicitor. Her family and friends spoke out. One woman said he killed her, while another woman said if he was still alive he would be charged with murder. The coroner said,
0: I believe that the evidence establishes that Martin McCarthy, for whatever reason, decided he was going to end his life and took Clarissa with him. We cannot be any more precise than that.
1: Then the final verdict was read to the inquest.
0: Clarissa died at Audley Cove from acute cardiorespiratory failure having been taken into the water, where she became unconscious and drowned. Mr McCarthy also died from acute cardiorespiratory failure. His death was self-caused.
1: The inquest also heard that Martin had changed his will just over a week before his death, leaving Rebecca with virtually no major assets. Instead, he bequeathed most of his estate to family and friends. Still battling horrifying grief, Rebecca had launched a high court action to restore her legal entitlement to her share of the family home and farm at the time. In any kind of marriage, you
2: think that there is this 50-50 division of everything. You know, I... I went into Martin's farm with the intent of spending the rest of my life with him. And I had made my home out of his home, you know, and I had nothing and absolutely nothing was in my name. And even when we got cars, new cars or new anything, you know, I was working as well. I was working to the betterment of the farm. I was working to keep up the house I was working outside of the home and bringing in money, and yet every single thing that was in that house, everything was in his name, everything was his. And after he murdered Clarissa and he killed himself and um, and I had to fight for pretty much everything that I once considered ours, our home. and so mine you know it was it was made very aware that what was my home was not and what what the day before on march 4th 2013 i could go into and consider it my home and my entitlement was no longer mine and and uh And that just, you know, it it makes you feel like that it was never a partnership, that our marriage was never two people coming together as equals. It just always seemed like Martin had the upper hand. Martin was the superior and I was the lesser. I was, I was his chattel. I was treated by him like nothing better than shadow.
1: You mentioned before that you've thought about potentially exhuming her body so that you can take her back to America with you. Is that something that you think about often or that you might ever actually do? Pretty much since,
2: since, geez, I think a week after the funeral, not even a week after the funeral, it was probably the day after the funeral, that, Martin and Clarissa were buried together. I wanted to reverse what had happened. And it was pretty much since right after, as I just said, that I wanted to exhume them. And so when I was using the legal aid to assist me in trying to overturned Martin's will I had brought it up to them and I had also then when I engaged Martin Harvey's office in being my solicitor I said it to them as well that that's that was my desire to have them exhumed and The barrister that he uses, she said that that really isn't done in Ireland and it would be a very long uphill battle to exhume them, you know, because obviously it wouldn't just be exhuming a single coffin on its own. She is there with her father. The barrister made it seem like I would have to go through a lot of legal hoops. And not only that, that um, I would also have to apply to the county council. And there was a very good chance that I would not be successful in being able to exhume Clarissa. And really the, the basis of her saying that was just because nobody's really ever done that before. From what I understood at the time and what I still understand now, exhuming is just not done in Ireland. And I know that at this stage, that is still something that I'd like to do. I'm not in the position right now to to take on that fight just because of, of having a new family. Again, of being blessed with the, the small little kids that I do have. And certainly COVID, goodness, we can barely do anything right now. So I, I just I don't know what the future is gonna hold. But pretty much since since the coffin was closed, I have regretted allowing Clarissa to be buried with Martin. And I I would Be very, 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 very thankful if I could undo that. It's just, it's very, very hard to, to think that my little girl is in his arms forever. And I do know that that's not where her soul is, that that's not where her spirit is. Before I went to America, in September of 2013. You know, I was still in the mind that eventually I would exhume Clarissa. And I still haven't ruled that out. Not at all. I know that it's not going to be something that I am able to do anytime soon. But I have not ruled out taking Clarissa's remains home with me. Do you think that Martin loved Clarissa? I think in his own way, Martin did love Clarissa in in the best way that he could. And I think that while that wouldn't be the same to you or I, I think that he did love her, but he also... in that love did not love her enough to see her as her own little person with her life ahead of her and her own little person with her own choices to make. I don't know if, I don't know If there are many people that would agree that he did love her, but I think that his last actions were more done out of his vendetta for me and his his need to hurt me and punish me. And Clarissa was unfortunately collateral damage.
1: How has Clarissa impacted your life, both the absolute horror of losing her in such terrible, terrible circumstances, and also just the kind of beauty of her soul, I suppose, and the loveliness of having there... How have both those things impacted you?
2: She has made me realize that nothing is certain and that life is short and fragile and we only get so many precious moments and those need to be enjoyed for the delicacy that they are. She was so happy. She was so energetic. She was so joyful.
3: Can you turn the camera on? It is on. I'm trying to take a
2: picture. Can you sing a song? Uh,
3: Camera, camera, camera.
2: Can you sing on the good ship?
3: The good ship. On the good ship. ship. Lolly. Sweet trip. Fruit to the candy shopper, bon bon play,
2: and I think that when you first have a child, you realize exactly what love is. You realize just how much love is in your heart when you look at your child, and that first child is really. What brings that home? And I I really can only speak, obviously, from a mother's perspective. But I know that that that's not an exclusive feeling for mothers. It's also for fathers as well. You know, you would do anything for your child. You'd move the sun, the moon, and the stars. You'd move mountains. And it it was that. Love that I had for her really opened me up to just how beautiful the world could be. And in the same breath, losing her opened me up to just how awful the world could be. But the life that I have now is very bittersweet in that she's not here, but that a lot of what she taught me remains every single day. I can't, I can't still have her. And so, you know, I used to just say to myself, if I could turn back time, I would do anything in my power to change what happened. And I've come to realize that I can't do that. And so I had to, i had to somehow at least to a to a certain degree had to heal from the fact that i couldn't bring her back that nothing that i could do would make her would make her little body take another breath And when I finally even somewhat began to accept that, that's when things started to open up. And that's when I began to realize that, you know, it's, it's okay to find joy in life again. It's okay not to wallow in your grief and depression every day because you lost this beautiful little girl. She would want you to celebrate the days that she can't. And it took me a long time to realize that there's no prize. There's no triumph in spending each day wallowing and pining for that little love, that little love back in your life, because it's not going to happen. And that's a very, very hard pill to swallow. I was very, very lucky to have the time that I had with her. And I cherish each and every day that I got to spend with her. And still, each and every day, she is still in my life she is still very much a part of who I am and she's very much a part of of even our family you know I don't I don't think that I would be obviously the same person I am today if not for her I think the most lasting impact apart from just the love that she gave me was just to enjoy every single precious moment and enjoy those moments with the people that you love and build relationships with people that you love because the time is very very precious and it's a very very short and We cannot control much in this world, but we can control how we choose to spend our time. I've had some amazing people that I can talk to and be myself with. And I've also been very, very fortunate in that my philosophy and what I hold on to is that at the end of the day, I'm not going to let Martin break me. I'm not going to let what he did ruin me. I can still I can still celebrate Clarissa every day because I was so fortunate to be able to spend that short amount of time with her. 3 years and 10 months. I got 3 years and 10 months with an amazing little child and many people aren't Able to experience the joy of having their own child, and yet I was able to enjoy and cherish that short amount of time with an amazing little girl, and I was so so lucky.
3: this, goes. Mommy, sing it, <in> please. <Spanish> da da da. What for me that you're risking the down Bye bye See you soon
1: Love love Clarissa A Life Stolen is an Irish Examiner podcast. It was produced and presented by me, Liz Dunphy, and edited by Deirdre O'Shaughnessy, with music, editing and sound design by J.J. Vernon. If you have been affected by the issues raised in this podcast, please see mentalhealthireland.ie for a list of support services, or phone the Samaritans free on 116 123. One, two, three. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools
3: interview a phenomenal collection of grown ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are like interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.